Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Here at Riverside, as we grab and reach for our Bibles this morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter number 9. We did skip over the last verse in chapter number 8, so hold that handy. As you're reaching and grabbing for your Bible this morning, we always say we choose to believe the Bible here at Riverside because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy. They are divine human in origin. We here at Riverside believe in sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone. We also believe in sola fide, which means faith alone. We also believe in sola, sola Christ, sola Christus, which is Christ alone. And sola gracia, which means grace alone. We also believe in sola deo gloria, which means God alone receives the glory. And, and today, when we look at Hebrews chapter number 8, verse, tw- verse number 13, this morning I do hope you have a copy of God's Holy Word, as this is the inspired Word of God. If you want to know what God is thinking this morning, would simply open up your Word, open up the Bible, and let's study together, and we can see God's thought in print. In chapter number 8, verse 13, we saw last week as the author of Hebrews was getting to the point. For the last couple of weeks, we were building up to the moment of chapter 8. The point is that we have a high priest who was Jesus Christ. And in chapter number 8, verse 13, the last verse of that chapter, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already to vanish away. Here he's making a point to those who were in the Jewish nation at this time when the book of Hebrews was written. Some people, scholars and theologians have argued and debated who wrote the book of Hebrews. Well, many say Apollos, who was a young preacher. Some say Timothy and some say Paul. I don't really care what handpiece God used. It's inspired word of God. It was written by a man but inspired by the Holy Spirit and delivered to the church for our edification. He's telling us here that the old things have passed away. Amen. Do you hear me this morning? That's why this morning you've not gathered here with bulls and goats that you came simply with hands lifted to the Father and praising His holy name. Not bringing pigeons, not bringing a fruit or vegetable offering, but simply bringing your heart like it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are living sacrifices. We bring ourselves. We don't bring our our wealth and our prosperity and give it to God. We bring ourselves. Let me go ahead and get it all out there so we can clear the muddy waters. God don't want your money. Man, no amens. Maybe some of you are shocked. He, He don't want your money. He wants you. He'd rather have you. He'd rather have your heart. He'd rather have your motivations, your meditations. He'd rather have you. The old has passed away. Those do this and do that and I'll bless you. No, in the new covenant, I will bless you in spite of what you've done. That's good, preacher. That's good. It's true that God loves you in spite of you. Let us continue. In Hebrews chapter 9, we learn about the Holy places. If you were with us the last year or two here at Riverside, you got to hear as we went through the book of Exodus, we saw how there's a holy place. There's a, there's a section in, in all of scripture that talks about God who is, who is in the most holy of holies. And, 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 it, and it explained how in the Old Testament it was simply a foreshadowing of what we see now in the New Testament. And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, I'm glad chapter 9 here and I'm glad you're here as we walk together through chapter number 9. Now verse number 1 in chapter 9. Now even the first covenant have regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. We see that he assumes that we know that in the new covenant there's regulations. Did you know there's a wrong way to serve God? 
Did you know there's ways that he don't want to accept that kind of worship? He is edified and glorified with the preaching of his commandments. Yes, we have mime teams and we have youth groups that sing sign language. Those things are wonderful, but that's not what brings people to the belief of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have singing is. Yes, we lift up holy hands. Yes, we do the sacraments. But we see here there are regulations that God has prescribed even in the Old Testament and he presumes that the believer knows about those in the New Testament. In the first covenant they had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. The earthly place of holiness would be the temple mount. That they would go there. That that's where you go to worship God. That you had to go. If you were an Israelite and you served the God of Scriptures, you would go to the Temple Mount at least three times a year at minimum. You were required to go. In the New Testament, we don't see where we're required to go to church. We're not required to be here at the river. We're not required to read the statutes and requirements of God. We're not required to tithe. We're not required to do those things. We get to... We get to we get to read our Bibles. We get to gather with the, the saints on a Sunday. We get to gather here and lift up holy hands and extol the name of the Lord. Those are the regulations. Let's go ahead and put it to rest. You've heard people say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You don't have to. But if you're a Christian, you'll be in church. Ooh, that was hot right there. Drop it like it's hot. I ain't going to drop the microphone. But it's true. If you are a Christian, you would be in church. Here, we learn about our earthly place of holiness in the Old Testament. And the problem in the, the, the church in our age and time is we blur the lines between the requirements of God and the graces of God. We like to pull on the law to justify ourselves. But the fact of the matter is if you broke into any of the laws, you're guilty before God. So you better lean a whole lot heavier on grace. You notice here from the pulpit, you hear booming, Thou shalt not. Man, whatever I lay down to thou shalt not, I see the heads hanging low. I have lied. I've had coveted in my life. I've committed adultery. I've lusted in my heart. I've blasphemed God's holy name. I've dishonored the Sabbath day. I've done things that I'm not proud of. And we hang our heads low. But then when I speak of that grace... Do you hear me this morning? That grace, those heads that are hanging low start to sway back and forth. The tears start to flow. And you think about how great a sinner you are. But then you think about how sweet and how wonderful that grace is. Yes, I am a great sinner, but He's a greater Savior. Amen, somebody. So we look at the earthly place of holiness. For in verse 2 it tells us, For a tent was prepared. The first section in which... Where the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. In verse number 2, we see it. He's talking about the tabernacle. But in that tabernacle at night, there was a lampstand. It's called a menorah. And their job was at sundown was to light that lampstand. Because they won't know windows in the tabernacle. As a high priest, if you were in there working, it was mighty dark. And only the illumination of that lampstand is the only light you had. But in the new covenant, Jesus is our light. There's no stumbling around in the dark. There's some things you might be concerned and might be wondering what to do. Well, look to the light. Look to Jesus. If you don't know what to do because it's dark, cry out to Jesus. Jesus, what do I do in this situation? Where do I go? How do I deal with this child? How do I deal with this spouse? How do I deal with my neighbor, my coworker? What do I do? Look to Jesus, the light of the world. We see how the author of Hebrews in chapter 9 starts to list the furniture in the, in the presence of the holy places. We hear how he talks about the lampstand. How Jesus is the light that we all need. We see in, that He's the table of the bread of the presence. That table, the bed of the presence, is a place where they had a little table, obviously, but it's where they would put a new loaf of bread from each tribe every day. The bread was fresh there. There won't no stale bread out at the table. This morning, I want to remind the congregation that His grace is new every morning. It ain't left over last night, hot, cold, in the middle turkey. It's new, fresh every morning. I'm sure you've probably used up all the grace yesterday. 
But rest assured, there's new grace ready for you today. Thank you, Jesus. That's good to somebody like me who lives on grace. I don't work work my way to heaven. I don't earn my way to heaven. It's only by His mercies that your boy gets to go to heaven. Amen, somebody. We see that the bread of His presence is called, it is called the holy place. In verse number 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense in verse 4. Notice in verse 3 and 4, there's a chasm in verse 3 and 4. A chasm is a separation. You just can't walk into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest would go there as we go on and read. There's a separation between sinners in 3 and 4. You just don't come in and start talking to God. You don't presume upon anything that you're even worthy. He didn't call you into the Holy of Holies. There's a curtain that separated you from God. A veil. But let me remind the congregation this morning. When Jesus hung on that cross, in your imagination's eye, see Him hanging there, bleeding and suffering for sinners. When He was on the cross, I was on His mind like the song said. And as He gave up Himself, as He hung His head and died, that veil... Listen to me this morning. That veil ripped asunder. There was no more separation between you and your God this morning. There is no separation between you and God. The sin has been wiped away. And He beckons you. Come on in. Come on in. No matter how dirty you are, how confused, how much anxiety has overwhelmed you, come on in. No matter how torn you are, how... How wounded you are. How heavy the burden. Come on in. The veil is torn. We look at the old covenant and we see it's just a shadow of what we bask in now. Here, the golden altar in verse 4 of incense. The golden altar. How is Jesus like the golden altar? If you haven't noticed... Anytime we come across Scripture, I mention the Scripture, but I make a beeline to Jesus. The golden altar here is an altar of incense, a sweet fragrance. What the high priest would do is he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would need a, a censer, or a, he needed a, a little bulb full of incense to smell sweet in the presence of God. The reason he had an incense was to cover his fleshliness, the stench of me, the smell of my mistakes, the smell of my sweat and my blood, my flesh had to be covered over with a sweet incense. A sweet smell. As he would burn the incense, the tabernacle or the temple will be filled with a sweet, fragrant smell. Also, uh, The incense in the book of Revelation is also looked at as the prayers of the saints. That they go up before God and He fills His nostrils. As God savors our prayers. And our prayers we cry out to Him. Father, supplies for me. Hold, Hold me, keep me, and lead me. Yesterday, you guided me through the darkness. And I know it's dark today, but I know your hand is on me and you'll lead me upon the path that I ought to go. You protected me and my household in the past and you're able to keep my foot sure-footed on the solid rock today. You're God and there is nobody in heaven who I cry out to but you, O Lord. The sweet fragrance of the incense. But let's go beyond that. Did you remember last week? Or maybe a week before. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, He saves you to the uttermost and then He is your advocate who prays over you. The incense, the prayers point to Jesus who is your advocate. Whoever lives to intercede for you, He prays over you. He cries out to the Father over you. He is your great high priest. Oh, we see how the altar of incense is just a reflection of who Jesus is. 
I do hope you're savoring this this morning. I hope it's good to your bones and good to your soul to know that Jesus is a sweet advocate to you. That He's a light to you. That He prays over you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He saves you to the uttermost. He will not cast you out. He will not drop you because you have issues. He will not avoid you. He is our God. An ever-present help in time of need. (laughs) A good and faithful shepherd. One who calls out my name. He calls me by name. Amen, somebody. Here we see that the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold and which has a golden urn holding the man and and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. In verse 5, Above it were the cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Here the author of Hebrews says, I want to talk about these things but I don't have time. But today I, I, I see that the clock says it's 10.30. We got time. Is it alright if we talk about it? Hey, can we break it down? Can we just explain it and then unpack it? Some of y'all, I know you got things to do. You got to go watch the race. You want to get the golden corral before the line gets long. You want to get home so you can lay in your lazy boy. But for the faithful this morning, for those who love Jesus, you probably say, Sing it again, preacher. Let me hear that redemptive story. Tell me how He loves me in spite of me. Tell me again that melody of grace. Let it fall on my ears and let me savor it in my soul. Stir my spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. This morning He tells us there's an ark in that holy place. An ark of the covenant and it's covered in gold on all sides. We look at gold as something pure and valuable. Would Jesus be the epitome of God? He's God in the flesh as we read in Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. That He is God incarnate. It's like He's the thumbprint of God. That's what God looks like. That's who God is. Jesus Christ. Even though the ark was covered in gold, Jesus is much more priceless, precious, and holy. Pure gold, but pure Jesus. Amen. We see what's inside this ark. A golden urn, a pure thing, a golden urn, but it holds manna. Besides the fact that Jesus is the bread of life, that we are sustained by Jesus day by day. Yes, we sit at our tables, we sit at a fast food restaurant, or we sit in our cars and eat, and it sustains our bodies. But Jesus sustains us day by day, keeps us going, and holds us. But we see here a golden urn full of manna. Let us remember in the book of Exodus as the children of Israel will wake up every morning and there was manna on the ground like it was due. That God supplied for them. They had to labor to gather this manna. And sometimes they wouldn't listen to Moses and they would gather extra for the next day. The reason being is because they didn't trust God to have the manna there the next day. So what would happen in their house, and I'm going to use King James slang, it's King James says, it stinketh. We would say, whoa, that's high heaven, boy, that stinks. But they say it stinketh as the worms would corrode and rot in their house. And it would smell out into the street. But we see here this manna is preserved in a holy place. Even though they're working stank, like we see in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, our righteousness is filthy rags. The best thing we do, God looks at it and says, that ain't good enough. I don't care how much you tithe, how faithful you are to attend a Bible-believing church. I don't care if your name is on the roll from 1919. I don't care if your hearing is going bad because you heard the Civil War cannings themselves. It don't matter how long you attend church, where you attend church. It's only the works of Christ that get you into heaven. I don't care if Moses himself baptized you or John the Baptist. It's only the work of Jesus that keeps you. Even though they gathered the manna and it stank and rotted, here in the holy place, that manna didn't rot. It stayed pure. 
until the time it was needed. I don't know what happened to the ark. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't really matter. We read in the book of Revelation that it's in heaven. I'll just take what God said and not speculate. I know Indiana Jones and the Lost Raiders of the Lost Ark came out and we can laugh and enjoy that. And some people believe that's true, that the Nazis have the Ark of the Covenant hid somewhere. I'm just going to say what the Bible says and trust that and not speculate. Amen? Amen. But this ark contained an urn of man. And that means the works of Jesus is preserved. That it don't rot. It don't grow old. I got a t-shirt at my house that's older than many of the people here. It is old. And it's faded. And if you pull the string the right way, it'll fall apart. Just an old shirt. But I love that shirt. I've had it for years. Since high school. Ooh, I feel old saying that. But this morning, Jesus' works don't grow old. And they don't fade away. It must have been an awesome work. It must have been something that split time in two. Oh yes, B.C. and A.D. Before Him there was a, a time and after Him was a time. And Jesus did a great redemptive work and we're still talking about it today and people are still changed because of work He did 2,000 years ago. It don't grow old. The blood of Jesus still covers offenses. The blood of Jesus still makes you white as snow. The blood of Jesus makes you whole again. The blood of Jesus. I'm preaching better than y'all acting this morning, but let's keep going. We see that this urn holding the manna is still preserved. But we see Aaron's rod, his staff that budded. We can read. (laughs) We can read in the Old Testament, it talks about a Savior that had come from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Is that the guy from Dukes of Hazard? No. The stump of Jesse was David's father. A dead cut down stump with nothing but dead roots. But out of it will shoot up one that will redeem all things. This rod had budded. It had no roots. It came to life. Jesus came from a barren womb. Before a woman, before this young woman even knew a man, she was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And he brought forth mercy and grace. This rod was also used to hit the rock in the wilderness. And out of that rock flowed water that quenched the thirsty tongue. Let it be reminded to the congregation this morning that Jesus was smited. He was beaten. And out of Him flowed water. And that water quenches the thirsty soul this morning. That water satisfies. That water washes and redeems. That water cleans. Why else would He say, I am the fountain of life. I am the living water. All those who are heavy laden, whose heads are hanging low, whose burdens are overwhelming, come to Jesus. All those who are broken, all those who are dirty and nasty and stained to the soul, come to Jesus. Do you see how the author keeps pointing to Jesus? Aaron's rod that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Inside this ark, we have the manna. We have Aaron's staff that budded. And also the tablets of the commandments. These are the stone tablets that Moses brought down off the mountain. On the mountain was engraved, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The laws of God. The requirements of God. On judgment day, I do hope that you're able to stand before God. Either A or B. A. God, I've kept all your commandments from my youth. I have never stumbled in any way whatsoever. And if you can't say that, B, you better know somebody who has. Have you always kept His commandments without fail? From your earliest memory, have you been holy before God? Have you kept His law unblemished with no faults? Or do you know someone who has? Uh, when I say, do you know someone you ha- who has? I don't mean your neighbor. They think they have. Look how they act. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about one who is holy, above reproach. Righteous in all their ways and their deeds and their meditations of their mind. Holy before God. And there's only one. In all of humanity, there is only one. No, it's not Malcolm X. It's not Martin Luther King Jr. It's not Buddha, Muhammad, Donald Trump. Biden. It's not any of those. It's not Dr. Phil, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock. 
It's only Jesus who was blameless before God, holy in all His ways, keeping the laws of God perfectly. Do you not see how the ark is a symbol, a foreshadowing of Jesus? How the work of Jesus is preserved like the manna in the ark. How the rod that budded with no roots, how Jesus came from nothing and thrives still today. How the laws of God are manifest in Jesus. He keeps the law. Oh, but we are not done. Even though the tablets of the law and the commandments are in verse 4, there's still another in verse 5, and it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. In verse 5, if you won't hear this past year when we went through the book of the book of Genesis and Exodus, we spoke of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is not a chair. It's a place, a location on the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is a, a slab of gold on the top of the covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there are two cherubim or two angels. And they face each other with their wings spread out. And they're looking down at the seat or the surface of the Ark of the Covenant. And there is a reason for the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood between the two cherubim. That was called the mercy seat because they would come there and they would plead mercy over the people of Israel. God, show yourself and shine your face upon us. In our comings and our goings, show grace towards us as He spills the blood on that covenant at the mercy seat. Well, how does that, how does that remind us of Jesus? Well, let me remind you in the Gospels, as they went to the tomb early that morning, the stone had rolled away and they peered inside. What did they see? They saw two angels. One at the head and one at the foot is what it says. And there between them, I'm sure we don't really say, but the bloody rags of Jesus, the blood-stained, soaked rags, the garments that they wrapped Him in were laying between the two angels. The blood of Jesus was sprinkled there. And the angels were at the head and at the foot pointing to the Old Testament. Those high priests who would come in and sprinkle the blood there. They were simply toling a pre-story of what will take place in the Gospels. That blood was sprinkled there as they cried out, God, show mercy on your people. Show grace on your people. So our high priest, do you hear me this morning, sprinkles the blood there. And he prays and cries out to God on your behalf. My blood has covered their iniquities. My blood covers their sins. Even though in the Old Testament it only covered it, in the New it washes it away. <laughs> I figured somebody would be more excited about that. Maybe y'all ain't sinned as much as me. I've greatly sinned before a holy God and I need a mighty advocate. I don't need some knockoff law firm to represent me. I need somebody really good who's never lost a case or a client. I need Jesus this morning. Someone who intercedes for me, who pleads for me, who washes me, and who keeps me. Amen. We see here that the mercy seat, the mercy seat points to Jesus. Even though the author didn't have time to speak of those things in details, we broke them down today. In verse number 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. Notice this ritual duties in verse 6. They do out of obligation and requirement. In verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes, but only once a year, and with, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. The high priest would go once a year on that holy high day 
The people of God would gather around the tabernacle. They would gra- gather around the temple. And the high priest would go in. And I want to also explain how we read in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Whenever the high priest was to dress in such a way, he would wear a garment, a robe. And the fringes and the edges of his garment, there would be pomegranates. A symbol of fruitfulness and blessings. But between every pomegranate, there would be little bells. Why would there be bells upon the robes of the high priest? Well, you must understand, the high priest, when he went into the Holy of Holies, he was putting his life on the line. Because if he had any unrepentant sin, or something that was held secret between him and the nation, even though he walked in with a bowl of blood that he would sprinkle on the mercy seat, if God searched him and found him unworthy, he would strike him dead where he stood. Because God is holy, and we are not. So to be considered a high priest was a big deal. And the only way you knew that the high priest was alive as you stood outside the tabernacle is you would hear the bells on the ends of his, uh, his robe. So the high priest was constantly slinging the blood and moving so the bells would ring. However, there are probably times when the bells didn't ring. And God struck down that high priest because of unbesetting sin, unknown to anybody else, but only known between God and them. And how would they get that high priest out of the Holy of Holies if he was struck dead? Who's going to go in and get him? I send my deacons. Y'all would have to go get him. Why y'all laughing? And what they would do, they would have every high priest tie a rope around his ankle. And they would send him in. And if he was struck dead, they would simply have to pull him out. God is holy. No, Isaiah chapter number 6 tells us that the Lord was high and lifted up and He's described as holy, holy, holy. Many people try to say that God is love. God loves everybody. God is good. Those things are true. But they don't stand alone. The only attribute of God that's Twice strong. That's three times strong. Is he's holy, holy, holy. That means he's a holy love. He's a holy justice. He's a holy righteousness. Holy. And we are not. Therefore, you see our dilemma. There is none among us who are required or even who meet the requirements to go into the holy of holies, the presence of God. I know the veil's torn. And we're standing there saying, I ain't going in. you going in. I ain't, I ain't holy. I ain't righteous. I have earned no rights to walk beyond the threshold of holiness. I, I need a high priest to go in and be an advocate for me. I need somebody who will go in to the inner place to mention my name. I, I need a Savior. I, I want to go ahead on this fifth anniversary and let you know it ain't your preacher. <laughs> It ain't your deacons, it's not your denomination leaders. It's not our Sunday school teachers, it's not our choir director, it's not our treasurers or our trustees. It's not the occasional attend church when I can. It's not your neighbor, it's not your plumber, it's not your landscaper, it's not your lawyer. Your only hope is our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He would bring in the blood we see in chapter number 9, verse 7. And He would offer it for the unintentional sins of the people. In verse number 8, by this the Holy Spirit indicts that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. In verse number 8, He reminds us that as long as there's a veil, as long as there's a separation, as long as those things are in place, there is no grace. I'm thank God that the veil was torn. Because if you judge me on the law, I'll bust hell wide open. It's only because of grace. I, I, I'll tell you, I love preaching about grace, but there's some of y'all when I look at, when I'm preaching about grace, your face lights up and it smiles. And I love to preach grace to you because you need grace. Uh, you don't need no, new laws. 
You don't need to be monitored. You don't need to be looked over and absorbed. And you don't need to be uh, told to check these boxes off because you will turn the assignment in without the boxes checked. Probably turned all, torn all up or say the dog ate my homework. You need grace today. Thank you, Jesus, that the veil was torn. That I could come boldly into the throne room of grace. That don't mean you walk in cocky and go, yeah, what's up, God? That's not what it means. It means you walk in saying, I know He'll provide for me. I know He'll keep me. I know He won't cast me out. I know He knows my name. I know He hasn't forgotten me. We can boldly walk in and find help in our time of need. In verse number 9, which is symbolic of the present age, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In verse number number 9, we see that whenever we brought a pigeon or we brought doves that were torn asunder, or whenever we brought a lamb or a goat, we brought an ox, it didn't do anything for our conscience. What we would do after we attend tabernacle that day is go home and say, Oh, I hope that was enough. I hope God forgives me. I hope, I hope that I presented the gifts were enough to appease God. I hope I get into heaven. I hope that He still loves me. I hope that He'll still look with mercy upon me. How, how many of y'all live on, I hope He does? How, how many of you live that way saying, I wonder if He likes me today. I, I, I wonder... If he still cares for me, I, I wonder if he's forgot about me. What a hard way to live. And I understand there might be days when you're not sure that you're on the lighted path. I understand that you'll find yourself in grievous sins. And I, I understand if you sin before God and you don't have assurance today. If you find yourself there and you sin before God, repent right where you are, where you are, in life and in the pew, no matter what you've done. Go ahead and repent before the sermon is over. Tune me out, because most of you have done that anyway. Just tune me out and say, God, forgive me, a sinner. Wash me, because I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end of this sermon. I, you can take my life right now. So God, forgive me. I want to be on right terms with you. Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. But to those who wonder if God is fickle. You ever met fickle people? Don't look at them. People who are with you one minute and the next minute they're not with you. Just because they're in your circle don't mean they're in your corner. Amen, somebody. Have you ever met people that are wishy-washy? They're like the tide. They're in one minute and out next. Let me assure you, God don't change. He saved you and He keeps you. I don't feel like it though. I don't feel saved. I don't feel like He loves me. Well, you know it says in Second Opinion chapter 3, verse 7, we walk by how we feel. No, we walk by faith. He said He loves me. Even though I feel I'm in the middle of a storm. He said He'll never forsake me. Even though I feel like I'm walking through the valley. He said He won't take His hand off of me. Even though I feel like I'm falling. He said those things. Walk in faith. Believing that our God. Don't lie. Here we see. That those sacrifices. Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Did you know you can have assurance today? Blessed assurance. I'm not talking to the person who's blatantly sinning before God. The person who sins before God. And they sit in church on Sundays and Wednesdays. Sit outside of church. Or sit at home and sin before God. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the one who serves God and has confidence in Him. Trusting in Him. You can have assurance today that He saves you and He keeps you. Regardless of what society says to you. That now is a philosophy that goes around. You can't be sure of anything. And if you are absolutely sure of something, that's narrow-mindedness. No, when you have the truth, or let me better say it, when the truth has a hold of you, nothing else matters. There are people who walk around saying, I'm believing my truth, living my truth. Well, everything can't be true. Somebody's lying. Scripture says, 
Let God be shown truthful and every man a liar. God is telling the truth. He has saved you and He keeps you. It's not an on-again, off-again relationship. It's not one day good, the next day He don't like you as much. It's God died for His people. His blood has washed them and kept them regardless of them. <laughs> that, that's so good to me. Uh, maybe it ain't that good to you. But you've heard people say, I'm just trying to keep myself saved. I'm just trying to keep myself saved. If, I, if it was up to me to keep myself saved, I would already be in hell. Let's be honest. It's God who saves me. And it's God who keeps me. You can disagree with that, but man, it sure is true. And I sleep better than most of you because you wonder if God has dropped the ball. Are you performing good enough for Him to love you today? But my God loves me in spite of me. The God of Scripture says, I will never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> oh, that's good. He saves me to the uttermost according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. He saves me absolutely. He don't halfway save me and put the rest of my, put the ball in my court. Will require me to finish the job. He says, I'm the author and the finisher of your salvation. He's faithful to finish what He began in you. Oh, that's so good. Preacher, does that mean I can sin all I want and still go to heaven? No. No. If you sin all you want, you won't never go into heaven. You, you just assume on His grace and His mercy. You abuse it. You never really love Jesus. You just love His benefits. But to those today who love Jesus, like the song says, it gets sweeter as the day goes by. The longer I live, the more I meditate on His grace and it grows sweeter. How many can testify and say, yes, His grace is sweeter day by day? Amen. Just one person. Okay, I saw you. Oh, there's another one. I'll say it's sweeter as the days go by. It's only because of His grace I'm saved. The rest of y'all, you're earning your way. I'm not. I, I only, I'm on banking on what He's done. I'm trusting on what Jesus has done on my behalf. You know what? That causes me to rest in His arms. Some of y'all are still striving to get to heaven. I'm serving heaven because heaven's already in me because of what Jesus has done. Woo! Amen, preacher. Come on, keep on going. Okay, I will. The conscience of the worshiper is not perfected because of bulls and goats. But in verse 10, but deal only with food and drink of various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He tells us that food and drink offerings, various washings, these things will not perfect your heart and not give you confidence. But, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Woo! It says eternal. It ain't one minute He loves me, and the next minute He kicks me out. It's not, I'm in this time, but I might not be in tomorrow. It's eternal. He keeps me, and He loves me. It's an everlasting redemption. He loves me in spite of me. That's just good to me. Sorry I get a little worked up. I know I need to be professional, but they ain't not professional about that. It's eternal redemption. God saved me and He keeps me. Amen. Somebody! What difference is there between the church and the world? We have a God who loves us unconditionally, who saved us and keeps us. Yeah, I know some twisted mind says, well that means I can sin all I want. You ain't even saved. Imagine a husband coming to his bride on wedding night and say, will you love me if I cheated on you? She says, absolutely, I love you. It'll hurt, but I, I love you. He immediately walks out the door and cheats on her and comes back and says, do you still love me? How many of us treat God unfaithfully the same way? We presume upon His grace. Whenever we expect His grace, it's no longer grace. Amazing grace is the kind of grace that blows your mind and takes your breath away. I can't even believe that He forgave that. I can't even put my mind around that. That He would take a wretch like me and redeem me. To those who are carrying around a grace card in your pocket that you pull out anytime you get in trouble or somebody calls you on your sin, it's all under grace, brother. Thou shalt not judge. Don't, don't treat me bad. Don't, 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 don't look down upon me. And you use grace as a means to sin. 
Hell could not be more hotter for you. But those this morning who savor that grace, not a common grace, but an amazing grace, I I cannot even fathom how somebody like me would go to heaven. Sorry, I had to pull myself together there just to think about His goodness and His mercy. I can't even wrap my mind around it. It's like taking a thimble and going to the ocean and trying to scoop up the ocean in that thimble. My little finite mind cannot wrap my mind around the infinite. And for those who are wondering this morning, there are no stretch marks on grace. He don't almost save you. He don't halfway save you. He saves you absolutely and completely. And He don't lose anything or anybody. This Jesus this morning, the author tells us that He goes in not with bulls and calves' blood, but His own blood. We read that His blood. Why couldn't He just go down to the Red Cross and donate a pint of blood every week and save everybody? No, we have to look beyond the poetic writing of this this text. It took His life to save sinners. A couple of years ago, there was a Southern Gospel song. It only took one drop of blood. No, it didn't. It took His life. For the wages of sin is death. He gave up His life for sinners. And it's not that He was a victim. Not that He was cosmic child abuse where God just wailed on Him and beat Him to death. No, He willingly died for sinners. Like you heard me earlier. When Jesus was on the cross, I was on His mind. It wasn't the nails that held Him there. It was His love for me, a sinner, a wretch like me. So we see the symbolic imagery here of Jesus entering the Holy of Holies of heaven with a bowl of blood. But it's His life. He laid down for sinners like you and I. Oh, but this is so good. And it's secured. Oh, look at verse 12. It's secured in eternal redemption. There are those who argue about Calvinism, Arminianism. They argue over it. There's people who say, well, you shouldn't preach uh, Calvinism, Augustinianism, or eternal redemption. Uh, you, should, you should preach that uh, the free will of man. I believe in the free moral obligation of man, and I also believe in the sovereignty of God, and they work together. I don't know how they work together because He's God, and I'm just man. But I know He secures me eternally. He saves me. And He keeps me. It's God who did this, not me. He saved me, absolutely. That doesn't make me proud or arrogant or point my finger at anybody. What it does, it humbles me down to the very dust. It's God who did this work. It's God who saved me. It's not because you said a little prayer when you were 12 years old and tried to hold on to Jesus all these years. It's because God saved you and has held on to you. It's God who redeemed you. He paid a price for you. Redeeming you out of slavery to sin. Death, hell, and the grave. It is God who gets all the credit. I point to Him and Him alone. Oh, this is good. I'm about to lose my mind. It's so good. We see here that in verse 13, it's the blood of bulls and goats. The sprinkle of defiled persons was the ashes of a heifer. Sanctified for purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. The Old Testament, all they had were ashes of a heifer, bull and goats. And you had to bake on that, that God would show you mercy. And that's all you had was ashes. Blood of a bull and goat. And you had to wonder, is it enough? Can God get me to heaven based on ashes? Blood from a bull and a goat. But when you get home today, and your key goes into that lock, and you're unlocking the door to go into your abode, your home, I don't want you to wonder, is it enough, Jesus? Are you able to keep me and to hold me? Are you able to even forgive the great sins that I've committed? Jesus, can you show, are you able even to show mercy upon me? 
Is it enough, Jesus, your blood? Is it enough to save me? Because I've done a lot of dirty things, Jesus. Let me assure you today, from the mouth of this preacher, dictated by the Holy Spirit speaking through me, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He saves the liar. He saves the thief. He saves the prostitute. He saves the John. He saves the pimp, the hustler, and the thug. He saves the self-righteous little old lady. He saves the, the hell raiser, the hell's angel. He saves. Jesus saves sinners. Absolutely and completely. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who does the saving. He's the one who laid down His life to save sinners like us. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He don't need your church attendance to save you. He don't need your tithing to save you. He don't need your 70 years of marriage to account toward your credit to get into heaven. He, he don't need your credit report to get you into heaven. He don't need to know that you recycle. He don't need any of those things. Jesus is enough to save sinners. Somebody's breathing a sigh of relief here today. When we get to heaven, we're not going to go through the doors of glory and the gates that are swung open and again, stand there and go, I made it. I did it. I got here. Oh, I'm tired. I did all I could. I, I kept myself right. I didn't drink caffeine. I exercised quite periodically. I did good. I didn't eat a lot of red meat. I ate vegetables once in a while. I didn't cuss as much as I used to. I made it. No, when we get to glory and we go through those pearly white gates and we step onto those golden highways and our loved ones are there, grandma, mama, daddy, brother, sister, cousin, we'll see them, but we won't be there because of them and we will know it. Yes, we read in Hebrews chapter 11, they're a great, they're a great audience that are cheering us on. Yes, but they're not the reason we're there. What we'll do is say, I'll be right back. I love you. I'll be right back. And we're going to go to the throne room if he doesn't already meet us there at the door. And Jesus will look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I know it sounds like you did it, but why else would we take off the crown that He places on our head and throw them at His feet? Because it's Jesus who gave us the strength. It's Jesus who preserved us. It's Jesus who kept us. It's by His grace and His grace alone. We're even there. So will you join me at the foot of Jesus that day? When that crown weighs heavy on your head, and will you snatch it off and say, Jesus, I'm not here because of my own accolades, my own strength, my own endurance. It's only because of you. And you will toss the crown at His feet. And I would be okay, and I know you will too, to lay there at His feet for the next thousand years and say, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Because then you realize, I can't even believe I'm here. I can't even believe I'm here. And it's only because of your mercy and your grace. Boy, ain't that good. Ain't a happy anniversary. Let's bow his head and pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace.